So before we start, let's pray today. Father, I thank you for, for this message and for the effect that it will have uh, on all of us. And so, Lord, I just pray your mighty presence would be with us. Father, pray, we pray that uh, you would heal our hearts where they're broken. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've decided to uh, subtitle this series on the heart, the messages that Satan really, really, really doesn't want Jeff to preach. <laughs> because if you remember two weeks ago, we had all these issues with the video, and we had the news of Joyce's granddaughter, and we had all that stuff going on, and <clears throat> couldn't quite figure out. Well, this morning, um, I got a migraine. I hadn't had one, and I couldn't tell you how long. Um, but I will say that as soon, and I get the kind where I'll start to see the star flickly things and then eventually the headache comes behind that. Well, as soon as I got prayer, it, it went away and I've, I have no headache. So also leads me to believe that it was probably largely a spiritual thing and not a physical thing. So um, <laughs> I'm just thinking this is just not a message that uh, we're supposed, that someone wants us to hear which is why I'm going to keep preaching it. <laughs> so to kind of set um, where we were, because it's been a couple of weeks. So last week I used um, this mythic story of the matrix, or two weeks ago rather, uh, to kind of help us understand some of the eternal truths that uh, about just the, the biblical reality of things. And the first one was that we don't, we just don't see the world clearly. And of course, the Matrix was that thing in the movie that was used to keep people from you know, really seeing things as they, they really were. And so in our case, it can be cultural expectations, um, religious misunderstandings, all those kinds of things can really prevent us from seeing clearly the world as it really is. Um, Second point was, we said that the glory of God is you fully alive. Uh, and in the movie, if you'll remember, I mentioned that at one point, Neo complains that his eyes hurt. And <clears throat> Morpheus explains to him, they hurt because he's never really used them before. And so in much the same way, you know, church father uh, Irenaeus gave us this quote, and it's based pretty much exactly on those things that Paul and Jesus say in scriptures. Um, that we are supposed to have this abundant life and we're supposed to have it now. It's not an eternal wait till later kind of thing. It's a now thing. Um, the third point was simply that we're engaged in a war, right? We just, we tend not to think of it that way. <clears throat> um, but there is a spiritual battle that is going on for our hearts. We have an enemy who's constantly trying to steal and kill and destroy all that is, is good and right uh, and do those things in our life so that we will ultimately lose heart and just give up. And so in response to that, the fourth point was that you've got to fight. You've got to fight for your life. You have to fight for your heart. 
And so when someone is trying to take something from you, then we've got a choice. You know, we can take the blue pill and just kind of let things ride, or we can take the red pill, as in the movie, and start to fight back for what is rightfully ours. And so <clears throat> that brings us today to today. And so we're going to continue this series on the heart with a message that's called The Heart of the Matter. And uh, to do so, I want to kind of set the stage for this by showing you another uh, a film clip of another mythic story. This one a little more lighthearted. Um, it's called The Wizard of Oz. And so here's a little clip that will kind of set things up for us. Can what? Oil can. Uh, oh, here it is. Where do you want to be oil first? He said his mouth. The other side. My goodness, I can talk again. Oh, oil my arms, please. Oil my elbows. Oh, oh, oh. Oh. Did that hurt? No, it feels wonderful. I've held that axe up for ages. Goodness, oh. how did you ever get like this? Oh. Well, about a year ago, I was chopping that tree when suddenly it began to rain. And right in the middle of a chop, I, I rusted solid. Been that way ever since. Well, uh, you're perfect my, now. My neck. My, my neck. Perfect? Oh, bang on my chest if you think I'm perfect. Go ahead, bang on it. Beautiful. What a nickel. It's empty. The tinsmith forgot to give me a heart. No, no heart? heart? No heart. All hollow. <laughs> Sounds like he's from New England. No hot. <laughs> we stopped that because I know there are some of you that get freaked out with the whole monkey thing, so I didn't want to. <laughs> now, what's interesting is that the movie, and this happens a lot with movies, the movie left out some of the criti critical part of the backstory of the Tin Woodman. And so to get that, we're going to have to go um, to the book. And so uh, the way the, the story goes is that the Tin Woodman had once been a real man. And he was in love with a beautiful maiden. And it was his dream to marry her once he had enough money that he could build them a house in the woods. But the Wicked Witch hated the woodman's love. 
And so she cast spells upon the man that caused him injury. And so one by one, his limbs needed to be replaced with artificial ones that were made of tin. Now, at first, this seemed like an advantage because the metal frame allowed him to work nearly as powerfully as a machine. So with a heart of love and arms that never tired, he seemed sure to win. I thought I had beaten the wicked witch then, and I worked harder than ever. But I little knew how cruel my enemy could be. She thought of a new way to kill my love for the beautiful munchkin maiden and made my axe slip again so that it cut right through my body, splitting it into halves. Once more the tinner came to my help and made me a body of tin. Fastening my tin arms and legs and head to it by means of joints so that I could move around as well as ever. But alas, I now had no heart. So that I lost all of my love for the munchkin girl and did not care whether I married her or not. My body shone so brightly in the sun that I felt very proud of it. And it did not matter now if my axe slipped, for it could not cut me. There was only one danger, that my joints would rust. But I kept an oil can in the cottage and took care to oil myself whenever I needed it. However, there came a day when I forgot to do this. And being caught in a rainstorm before I had thought of the danger, uh, I had thought of the danger my joints had rusted, and I was left to stand in the woods until you came to help me. It was a terrible thing to undergo, but during the year I stood there, I had time to think about the greatest loss I had known, and that was the loss of my heart. While I was in love, I was the happiest man on earth but no one can love who has not a heart. And so I am resolved to ask Oz to give me one. If he does, I will go back to the Munchkin Maiden and marry her. Now both Dorothy and the Scarecrow had been greatly interested in the story of the Tin Woodman. And now they knew why he was so anxious to get a new heart. All the same, said the scarecrow, I shall ask for brains instead of a heart. For a fool would not know what to do with a heart if he had one. <clears throat> I shall take the heart, said the tin woodman. For brains do not make one happy, and happiness is the best thing in the world. Now notice that there once in the story, there once was a real man who was alive and in love. But after a series of blows, his humanity was reduced to what? To efficiency. He became sort of a machine, essentially a hollow man. At first, he didn't really even notice what had happened to him. And because this condition made him such an excellent woodman, he kind of, well, really what happens when, that, when someone becomes that efficient and that able to do something like that, he sort of starts to forgo his heart. <clears throat> and notice also that it was the wicked witch who brought disaster upon him. Baum's mythic tale reminds us 
that the enemy knows how vital the heart is. Even if we do not, and that all of his forces are fixed upon its destruction. Four, if he can disable or harden your heart, <clears throat> then he has effectively foiled the plan of God, which was to create a world where love reigns. By taking out your heart, the enemy takes out you, and you are an essential part of the story. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> some of you might be wondering, well, how do I know if my heart's been disabled or deadened? How, how do I know that? Well, let me give you some, some th something to think about. These would be indicators if, you know, if this, if these, any of these really ring true, then this is probably an indication that something has happened. So, for example, personal conversation with God and the pleasure of sweet communion with him is infrequent. In your relationship with God, you most often experience shame, condemnation, a sense of being disqualified or being unable to please him. Your walk with God is reduced to a focus on external behaviors, like principles or lists of do's and don'ts, rather than internal realities. Most of your Christian activity is done under pressure. You lose sight of the way things really are. You don't see yourself as having a crucial role in God's story. You no longer believe or live as if the world is at war. Life becomes exclusively routine and mundane. You kind of live in this malaise or a fog of sorts. Your work or your career is mostly drudgery. You have little passion for beauty or adventure. You rarely have just a really good, hearty belly laugh, nor do you weep. Men in particular tend to be bored. They have accepted or hidden addictions or habits, such as compulsive behaviors, excessive behaviors, pornography, anger, etc. Women tend to be too busy, and so they as well have either accepted or hidden addictions or habits, um, compulsive behaviors, maybe excessive volunteering, um, maybe getting caught up in romance stories or stuff on TV or anything like that. And finally, you just become preoccupied with you. You know, your needs, your desires, your wounds. So if any of those in some way describe you, then how can we, in the words of Don Henley, get down to the heart of the matter? Should we go visit the wizard? No. I think it starts by understanding, first of all, that your heart is central. <clears throat> now, the, the fact that we would even have to be reminded of this really shows us how far we've fallen from the life that we were meant to have or it shows us how powerful this spell has become. 
I think I mentioned this last week, and I was pretty close, or two weeks ago. I, th I said I thought the word heart appears in the Bible about 800 times. I checked. In the English Standard Version, it's there 849 times. Uh, and the subject of the heart is addressed in the Bible more than any other topic. More than works or service, more than belief or obedience, more than money, even more than worship. So maybe God knows something that we've forgotten. Of course he does, because if you think about it, all of those other things that I just mentioned really are matters of the heart. Let's just consider a few passages from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus called this the greatest of the commandments, and notice what comes first. From 1 Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. From Luke, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. From Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. From Psalm 119, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Matthew says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Second Chronicles, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And then again from Proverbs, all a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. According to the scriptures, the heart can be troubled, wounded, pierced, grieved, and even broken. How well we all know that. Thankfully, it can also be cheerful, <clears throat> glad, merry, joyful, and rejoicing. The heart can be whole or divided. As in that phrase we often use, well, part of me wants to do that, and part of me doesn't. The heart can be wise or foolish. It can be steadfast, true, upright, stout, valiant. If you look at any concordance under the word heart, you will see all of these uh, listings. It can also be frightened, faint, cowardly, melt like wax. The heart can be wandering, forgetful, dull, stubborn, proud, hardened, wicked, perverse. I think we know that as well. Much to our surprise, according to Jesus, the heart can also be pure, as in blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And even noble is in the story about the sower. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. <clears throat> the Bible sees the heart as the source of all creativity, courage, and conviction. It's the source of our faith, our hope, and of course our love. It's the wellspring of life within us, and the very essence of our existence, the center of our being and the font of our life. 
Think about your work life for a moment. Why are so many people bored and frustrated in their jobs? Why do they dread Monday morning and thank God it's Friday? <laughs> well, their hearts are not in their work. In fact, they're far from it. And so however a person arrives at you know, what they're doing with their lives, chances are it was not by listening to what their heart was telling them. The same thing is true for our love lives. Why do so many relationships fail? Well, because either one or both partners no longer have a heart for making it work. And so on and on and on it goes. Why are so many people struggling with depression and discouragement? Because they've lost heart. Why can't we seem to be able to break free from our addictions? Well, because somewhere along the way, in some moment of carelessness or desperation, we gave our heart away, and now we can't get it back. There's no escaping this idea of the centrality of the heart. God knows that, and it's why he made it the central theme of the Bible, just as he placed our physical heart right in the center of the human body. The heart is central, and so to find our lives, we've got to make it central again. The second thing is that the point of all living is love. Of all things that are required of us in this, in, in this life that we have, what's the most important? What is the real point of our existence? Well, Jesus was confronted with this question point blank. And he boiled it down to two things, loving God and loving others. Do this, he said, and you will find the purpose of your life. Everything else will fall into place. Somewhere, I think, down deep inside, we know that's true. We know that if we could truly love and truly be loved and never lose love, that we would finally be happy. Gerald May wrote, we are created by love to live in love for the sake of love. And is it even possible to love without your heart? The heart's the connecting point, the meaning place between any two people. The kind of, of deep soul intimacy that we crave with God and with others can only be experienced from the heart. <clears throat> Christians have spent their whole lives mastering all sorts of principles. They've done their duty, they've carried on the programs of their church, and they've never known God intimately, heart to heart. I have to wonder if that's when Jesus says that I never knew you. We can attend a class and we can take in information and then we, use, we can use that information to change the way that we live. But none of that brings you into intimacy with God. Just as taking a course on anatomy won't help you love your spouse anymore. 
You will find me, God says, when you seek me with all your heart. So says Jeremiah. And Oswald Chambers said, so that is what faith is. God perceived by the heart. So what does intimacy with God look like to you? What more could be said or what greater case could be made than this? To find God, you must look with all your heart. To remain present to God, you must remain present to your heart. To hear his voice, you must listen with your heart. And to love him, you must love with all of your heart. And let me just say this. You cannot be the person that God meant you to be, and you cannot live the life that he meant you to live unless you live it from your heart. And then finally, Jesus came to set your heart free. Charles Ryrie, <coughs> he of the uh, Ryrie uh, Study Bible, <coughs> says, heart in scripture is considered the very center and core of our life. James Houston called the heart the innermost part of the human personality, the center of those qualities that make us human. But I think I like Oswald Chambers' definition the most. He says the use of the Bible term heart is best understood by simply saying me in place. It puts us back together from all of the psychological, scientific, and even theological dissections that we've been handed over the years. And it gives us back our whole self, me. The heart is me, the real self the deepest and truest you that you can be. That's why the heart is central. For what shall we do if we dismiss ourselves? See, Jesus didn't die for an idea. He died for a person. And that person is you. And you and you and me. But there again, so many of us have been led astray. If you ask any number of people out on the street why Jesus came, if they know who Jesus is, and you'll receive any number of answers, but you'll rarely hear the right one or the real one. He came to bring peace to the world. He came to teach us the way of love. He came to die so that we might go to heaven. He came to bring economic justice. And so on and on it goes. Much of it based on a partial truth. Now those are necessarily wrong, but they're only partly true. And I think it would be better really to let Jesus speak for himself. And so Jesus steps onto the scene. And the first thing he does is he reaches back to a 400-year-old prophecy to tell us why he's come. And he quotes from Isaiah 61.1, which goes like this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. 
The meaning of this quotation, I think, has been clouded by years of religious language and ceremonial trappings. So what is he really saying here? Well, it has something to do with good news, with healing hearts and with setting someone free. That much is pretty clear from the text. So let's, how would we translate this perhaps into plainer language? Jesus might say, well, God sent me on a mission and I have got some really great news for you. He has sent me to release and restore, to release something and to restore it. And that something is you. I'm here to give you your heart back and to set you free. He chose this passage above all the others that he could have picked from. That this is the heart of his mission. Everything else that he says and he does finds a place underneath this banner somewhere. I'm here to give you your heart back and to set you free. That is why the glory of God is man fully alive. What he came, what he said he came to do. So just suppose for a minute, what if that really is true? Have you tasted that ministry of God? Would you want to? I think how we've managed to overlook this is perhaps one of the great mysteries of our times. It is simply diabolical, despicable, and downright evil that the heart should have become so misunderstood, so maligned, so feared, and so dismissed. But there's our clue. We're in a war, and only a war would account for such a great loss. That Jesus came to set your heart free is the very last thing that the enemy wants you to know. And so just as the wicked witch did to the ten woodsmen, the enemy's plan from the beginning has been to assault our hearts. Make people so busy that they ignore their heart. Wound them so deeply that they don't want a heart. Twist their theology so they despise the heart. Make it all about intellect. Take away their courage. Destroy their creativity. Make intimacy with God impossible. See, of course your heart would be the object of such a great and fierce battle. It's the most precious possession that you have. Without your heart, you can't have God. Without your heart, you can't have love. Without your heart, you can't have faith. And without your heart, you can't find the work that you were meant to do. In other words, without your heart, you can't have life. And so the heart of the matter is this. We need to get our hearts back, our whole 
hearts. Now, if this message has resonated with you, and if you feel that somewhere along the way of your life that you have lost heart in any way, I want you to stand. And I'm going to pray a prayer that God would restore our hearts. And then we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and really begin that process. Now, several things could happen. You might begin to grieve the loss of your heart. And if tears come, let them come. I, I love it when people cry during these times because I know God's at work. God might show you how you lost your heart. And if that happens, I would suggest you find someone to pray with you. You might sense this need to forgive somebody. And if that happens, then just do it. It's God telling you, it's not me. God's the one who's telling you that you need to forgive. Maybe God will show you something that you need to repent from. Again, just repent. Do it right then. Now we're going to, to go into this time and we're just going to let it linger for a while. Um, I felt right at the beginning of the, the service, and I should have mentioned this before, but communion is available at the back table and it's available up here. And if God prompts you, you know, if you want to take communion during this time, then feel free to do so. But we're not going to offer it um, to everyone. Did you have a question? Any time. At any time. And see, that that's a, it's a good question because so many times that heart loss comes when we're very young. And we don't, know, we don't even know it's happened. And so then we go through the rest of our lives, you know, dealing with this stuff. And we, have, we, we can't figure out, it's like, why, why do I always feel this way? Or why is, do I respond that way to people? Or why this or why that? And it's because there's been a, a, a wounding in there somewhere. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's over the entire course of your life at any point. So like I said, if you want to take communion, fine. We're going to pray for a little while. Uh, then I will probably ask uh, our praise team to come back up and close us with a song. And uh, at any point during this time, I mean, I think by now you all know who the folks are that pray up here with people on Sunday mornings. If God prompts you to go pray with someone, once again, I would just go and seek them out and know that they're going to be more than willing to pray with you. And I would be willing to bet that of anybody in here, not just those that have you know, been trained to do so. So let's close our eyes and we're just going to pray. And so Jesus, I ask you now that you would send the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. 
And I pray that by your spirit, you would guide us in this time of reflection and prayer so that we may know you, that we may really know you and find the life that you have offered to us. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. We want all that you have for us here in this life. And so we ask you now, we want and we specifically ask that you would give us our whole hearts back. So I invite your Holy Spirit to come. Come, Spirit. Thank you, Father. Mending that that's broken, freeing that that is imprisoned, setting free hearts so that they may love fully. So bless you, Lord God, in all of that. Keep us safe and protected until we have the chance to gather again. We thank you and we love you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.